Good morning, church. Good to be with you. I didn't plan it, but my wife did read the scriptures this morning, so it worked out well. Uh, I'll be preaching for you Isaiah 43, 1-7 today. And <clears throat> just before I get into it, I, uh, my name is John Fox. I'm one of the pastors here, administrative pastor, and uh, preach from time to time, so really excited to do that today. And like Pastor Jason said, today's the first Sunday in the kids' wing, so we're so glad to be indoors, out of the rain. Not that it's raining, but it is cold, like he said. So uh, it's not 100%, but at least we're in, and it's starting to feel like home again. So thank you uh, to all of you who have sacrificed so much on demo days um, and, and um, just giving for the work, spending time outside in the kids' ministry, uh, under a tent, in the rain, whatever we have to do. It's just so easy to uh, continue on uh, life like normal, but, you know, some things, it's just so nice to have, like shelter and, uh, you know, bathrooms and tables and chairs. So just want to encourage you guys, thanks so much for all that you've done and all you've sacrificed for. Uh, I really feel like on the whole uh, building Ramallah that we're doing, this does just give us a firmer place in the neighborhood to be able to do gospel ministry. That's what this is about. So thank you so much for that. I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then we will get into Isaiah uh, 43, or otherwise known as a uh, love letter. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your patience. With us, your people, even though, like you say just in the previous chapter, that my people, they, they wear me out with their sins. Lord, that uh, you are abounding in steadfast love, and your love is good for us as your special people. Lord, I pray that as I preach, you would enable me to preach accurately and winsomely as you communicate so wonderfully to your people here. I ask your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, like I said, this passage is somewhat of a love letter. And I am not one to write love letters often, as my wife has pointed out this past week when I was talking about this sermon, unfortunately. So sorry about that. But um, that is good application for all the husbands today to read this letter and say, what? work do I have cut in front of me here? But the main point today, I would say, is this, that out of these seven verses, we see that nothing will come between God and his people. It's very much of what God is saying through Isaiah to his exiled people. Nothing will come between me and you. Nothing. And there are three reasons or three things that we see here related to that that will go through in order. It's Because God crafted his people for himself. It's the first thing that we see. And then that God will be with his people in their suffering. Nothing will separate God and his people because he's with them inseparably. And that God will pay any price for his people. There's nothing more valuable than his special people. And like I said, in this passage, in much of Isaiah, God is going to be talking directly to his people. Sometimes He gives um, oracles through his prophets, 
you know, statements of condemnation for the surrounding enemies, statements of condemnation for his own people because they forsake him. And the world is in turmoil because of his own people's sinfulness and everybody else's. In fact, in the biblical narrative, we have already seen God tries, right? He tries to create and his people turn on him. And then he wipes them out, tries again with Noah. And we see this pattern continue where God selects somebody. He selects this moon worshiper called Abram. And still trying to create his special people. And this is how God begins this. This is very intimate. This is a family conversation. This is a romance conversation that God will give in these seven verses. You continue reading on past the seven verses. That's fine. No one's going to penalize you for that. You can read the Bible as much as you want. But for this Sunday, we're just going to focus on 43, 1 to 7. And here's what God has to say to his special people. Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. One of my favorite songs is uh, from the band called Mute Math, and they just have one song that says, You are mine. That's it, the whole song. And it sticks with us. You are mine. As God is going to be speaking tenderly to his people, he begins with two titles, two phrases, two words, Jacob and Israel. And it's very easy for us to pass over this fact, but what God's doing is he's, he's romancing his people. He's saying, do you remember when Jacob and Israel are names that are interchangeable in the Old Testament, if you didn't know that. First, there is Abram, and then there's Isaac, and then there's Jacob. And Jacob, at the end of his life, gets blessed by God, and his name is turned into Israel. And as you see God relate to his people and talk to his people in much of the Old Testament, it takes on that title, my people Israel. And In fact, with the Exodus, this is how God talks to Moses. Go to tell Pharaoh, let go of my son, Israel, his special people. And why is God doing this? It's because God is, I think, relating to those early days of romance. When he begins this book uh, in Isaiah, that's very much the language that Isaiah is using. Do you remember when you were young? And when we were in love, it's the language of romance. And this uh, just brought to mind for me so much of my own story with my own wife. Early years in college, and I asked her if I could share this, and she was fine with that, so I have permission. But in those early years, if you are married, hopefully you have those. Hopefully you have those memories, or maybe you've just not been married, but been in love, there's still that period of infatuation that you get, isn't there? When everything is right. Everything is right, and they could do no wrong. They're perfect, and you're blind. You're blind as a bat. You don't see all the things, right? You're marrying a sinner. You're a sinner. They don't see it. They don't see it for you either. But it serves a wonderful purpose, the early kindling 
of romance and relationship. And for us, I was, uh, Andrew and I are both from Houston, Texas, and um, I went to a number of colleges, but towards the end, I graduated from uh, the College of Biblical Studies in Houston, and during those uh, two years that I was there, my wife was at Houston Baptist University, back when it was called Houston Baptist University. And it was, if you don't know anything about those colleges, it's on the inner city of Houston, and it takes a while to get there. We're on the north end, so it would take at least an hour and a half to get in to uh, do college. And I was driving six to eight hours a day um, doing jobs all in and around Houston. School photography. I did school photography. I was, the, I was that guy. I was that guy. Picture day. Yeah. I might have taken some bad pictures, but most of them were good. So as I'm driving around, spending lots of time, then I have night classes. Because what are you going to do when you work all day? You go to school at night. So I drive to inner city Houston, go to night class, four hours a night. And um, in between, I had a 30, maybe 30-minute 30 hour gap from work to going to class. Really tired. Working all day, driving all around the city. But what I would do is I would go drop by HBU. Because Andrea was there. And in those early years, something that I would do that she brought to my mind recently is I would make her sandwiches. Because when you're poor, you just make sandwiches and you take them with you everywhere you go, especially if you're driving around all day. So I would have like a bag of sandwiches on me at all times. Because <laughs> you never know. Am I going to you know, be up all night? Am I going to go to another city? I don't know. I'm just going to have sandwiches with me everywhere. Uh, but I intentionally started crafting these sandwiches because I love sandwiches, especially with bread and butter pickles. You know, it's, it's, that's the way to go. Um, but after Andrew and I started spending more time together, I started to think about her and think at 4 a.m. in the morning when I'm getting to, ready to leave for the rest of the day, come back at night, I'm going to make an extra one because I'm going to see her tonight. And unfortunately, that set a precedent, so I normally had to then keep making sandwiches. Uh, but she was okay with that, so. It became a token. Why do I share this with you? Because it became a token of my love for her in the early days. And this is very much what God is talking about. He's saying, do you remember the early days? Before all this stuff happens, before all the bad things happen, before all the drama Do you remember those? They serve a very special purpose in our relationships and the same for God with his people. And why do I talk about crafting? Because in this passage, this is how God talks about his special people. All comparisons end at this point. Because we don't make other people in our image. But God has made his special people for himself. Now the Lord says this, the one who created you, Barah, the same word in Genesis 1 and 2 when it's talking of God making the heavens and the earth, the all-powerful, mighty God making everything. He says, but I made you. I made everything else, but I made you, Jacob. And the one who formed you, Israel, a different word, the same word as used for making everything. Adam in the garden, that God created Adam, and he formed him. Two very important words. God creates everything, 
but he formed the man. In fact, we see with this word in Genesis 1-2 that God gets down into the dirt. The almighty, sovereign God bends down, gets in the dirt, and forms this man. Another way that you could talk about this word is to say that this is the hands of the potter who is intentionally crafting his own vessel for his own purposes. Just the right pressure, just the right design, just the right intention. So God says, I know you, inside and out. It makes you think of Psalm 139. And he says, don't fear, for I have redeemed you. There is redeeming that's need, even for God's people here. He says, I've called you by name. So God has, as we see, crafted, he's formed his people for himself in a very special way, even in the early days of romance. Certainly makes you think of Genesis 2-7 and God's forming of Adam. But we see in this poetry, in Isaiah, this is poetry, that it's going to operate in a mirror-like fashion. Verse 1 says, I created you and I formed you. And verse 7 says, everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. So we get a little bit more definition here. This is how Hebrew poetry works. It works like stereo, not mono sound, stereo, where you hear something, you hear something else, a little bit different, but it intensifies it. It sets it off. So he says, not only have I formed you, my special people, I've created you for my glory. So God, in crafting his people for himself, isn't just crafting his special people. He's making them with intention, with his design for his own glory. What this tells us is that nothing will come between God and his people. Why? Because he's crafted them. There's so much design, so much intention, so much love in this act. And here's what it means for you and me. You are not an accident. You're not. So many other worldviews out there. The Christian worldview says this loudly, strongly, confidently. You are not an accident. You're not worthless. You're not purposeless. God created your individual makeup, your personality, and all those hidden parts of you that you have yet to understand. You've got people around you that could tell you some of them now, but even they don't know. God knows. We know the older that we get, we keep learning more about ourselves. God knows all of it. And yet, in those hidden aspects of your person, that you're yet to discover, he designed them. And this is true of everyone everywhere, made in the image of God, but even more special than this, for God's own people, his special people. How true is this? If this is true of everyone everywhere, then for his special people, the reason, say it this way, the reason for your existence as a believer in Jesus, is to experience God's love and glorify him for it. There's nothing else in creation like that. 
Yes, all of creation is to glorify God. God did not get down in the dirt, breathe his life into the dirt for anything else. But mankind, and in mankind, his own special people who are to glorify him. So we see that God has crafted his people for himself. So nothing's going to get in the way of that. Also, God will be with his people in their suffering. When we keep reading, we'll take the other mirror verses, starting in verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. And the flame will not burn you. So this passage tells us that God is present with his people. It's very key. We have to get that. God is present with his people in their suffering. This is a tremendous comfort to his people in the Old Testament. Water and fire, water and fire. Why are these words used, or flood and fire? There's a number of reasons that we could talk about. Uh, One clear reason is because water and fire are often the ways of talking about God's judgment on sinful people and a sinful world. When you think about Noah in the flood, what does God do? He sends water and wipes out all of the corrupt mankind and their evil stain on the world. Wipes it out. Second Peter 3.10 tells us that yet again there will be a destruction from the Lord in which he purges the earth with fire. In fact, the whole universe. First water, then fire. But water and fire are also used not just in judgment, but for cleansing and purification. Numbers 31, 23 is one of the best passages to point that out to us, that speaking, this is, this is how God uses for his people water and fire, purification. And we see more of this later on. We could talk about so many different things in the Old Testament, but one of the best stories is Daniel 3, where you have God's people in exile, Deported 150 years after Isaiah pens this passage. 150 years. Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. They are ministering as some of the highest officials in Babylon. And then as time goes and they're elevated, Daniel's not on the scene, at least in view for some reason, and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are there under the employment of this tyrant king. Nebuchadnezzar was easily one of the most brutal, egocentric rulers of the world that is ever seen. And they're they're working under his rule, and he says, I'm going to build a statue, the biggest statue you've ever seen, and I'm going to make it out of gold so everyone comes here from all over the earth, and then they bow down to it and pay tribute to it as if they're paying tribute to me. And Daniel's friends are commanded to come and bow down to this image, a graven image. And they say, our God says we can't do that. We have to worship and serve the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. His name is Yahweh, and you're not Yahweh. We can't do that. So Nebuchadnezzar throws them in a fire. He says, burn them up. So they throw them in a fire, 
And then he jumps up from his throne looking at what's in the fire. It's not three men. It's four men now. And they're not getting burned up. Not only are they not getting burned up, they are, in fact, walking around in the fire. What is going on? This doesn't always happen, but literally, when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the flame will not burn you. They live it. They experience it. How? There's a fourth member with them in the fire. I just have to imagine that for all the Israelites in and around those times, they're freaking out, right? Because they're like, it happened. It really happened. God's with them in the fire. Isaiah said it would happen. And there's so many different stories we could talk about. We could talk about God with his people in their suffering. We talk about Jacob in the wilderness. He's about to go run into his brother, avoided him for decades, and he knows he's going to kill me. So what does he do? He goes to meet with God, wrestles with God. God blesses him. God with his people. We could talk of Joshua before the battle of Jericho. Afraid. And then a man standing in front of him in the night. Who are you? Are you for us or against us? Neither. We could speak of Moses on Mount Sinai with the elders ascending the mountain of fire where all of God's presence is and the mountain is smoking. Moses is in turmoil. What do I do with all these people? God with his people in the fire. We could speak of the Israelites, cloud by day, fire by night, God with his people and all their sufferings and turmoils. God is very much with his people, as he says. Now, what does this mean for us? Does this mean that believers are exempt from suffering? No. We only need to look at human history, in fact, the Old Testament, to see that that's not the case. Sometimes there are these incredible experiences, like with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's friends. That is not the norm. The norm is for God's people to go through suffering like everyone else, often more than everyone else, and for God to be with them in it. God's people are not exempt from suffering. There's a lot of teaching out there today that will tell you otherwise, that will tell you that there are things that you should not expect as believers. That's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible, in fact, tells us to expect the worst. First Peter 4. How is Peter going to grapple with this message? Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you, as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Now, what is Peter talking about here? The flip side of this verse in Isaiah 43. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up, 
And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the ends of the earth. There is a tremendous difference here from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And here it is. In the Old Testament, God is with his people. But God is not in his people. In the New Testament, because of Jesus' sacrificial life, death, and resurrection, now God not only is with his people in suffering, he is in his people as they suffer. This changes everything for God's people. You see, in the Old Testament, anytime you wanted to be around God, it's an issue of proximity. You need to be at the tabernacle so you can be around God. You need to be near the Ark of the Covenant. You need to be near the temple. And the further away you get from those things, the further away you get from the presence of God, the nearness of God. In the New Testament, Jesus comes as the second temple and dwelling demonstrating God, being God. And believers in Jesus then become little temples all over the earth. Here's the encouragement for you. Whatever suffering that you experience in this life, not only is God with you, he's in you as you experience it. There's nothing, there's nowhere that you could go that God isn't there with you. This boggles the mind, especially for early believers, to say, how can the fullness of God dwell in me through the Holy Spirit? I don't understand it. And yet Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. Why? Because he knows. God's in you. So much of the writing for the early church is, don't freak out. God's got this. He's with you. He's for you. He's in you. God is with his people. In fact, God is in his people. Anyone and everyone will suffer. There's no getting around it. But here's the thing about God being in his people. I think we all know this. The believers that you know that go through suffering and they make the most of it, they grow they grow like nothing else. I know people like that, that when they experience any any new hardship, any new difficulty, and they just walk lockstep with God, I'm like, man, I won't be like that. That's what it's for. The fire, the water, these are purification terms. So believer, this morning, not only is God with you and in you in your suffering, in your trials, your adversities, whatever they are. He's using them to purify you. His design and his purpose for you in the suffering that you experience is that you would rely on him more, know him more, love him more, rest on him more than if you wouldn't have gone through all the difficulty. And we know this. We see this all over the place. This is how God matures us. And so I just ask you this morning, are you willing to embrace it? Are you willing to embrace what God has for you? Well, those things are wonderful. Those truths are great, but they don't necessarily always move my heart. 
In the next three to four verses, we do have something that will move our heart. In Isaiah 43, three through four, we read this. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, and your Savior. I have given Egypt as a ransom for you, Cush and Seba in your place, because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. Now, these two verses are difficult for us. They're certainly difficult for me in studying. But one of the key things that helped me is to say, you know, the other things, they, they, can, they can inform, they can fill my mind, but do they move me? Not like this does. Why? Because this is a chiasm. Does that move anybody here? <laughs> Chiasms? Chiasm is a way of centering the subject, the focal point, in a literary device. This, in fact, this whole section, this whole seven verses is a chiasm. And here's what I mean by that. I'll give you an example from elsewhere. Genesis 9-6. Whoever sheds, A, the blood, B, of man, C, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, talking about the heinous acts of mankind and murder that's happening in God's creation, which is an abomination, the writer, the author, puts in this literary device to say, let me give you the main point here. That's the man. This is an atrocity. That man should kill man. So his A, B, C, C, B, A format drives home the point of what I'm talking about. That's a chiasm. It can happen over a verse. It can happen over a a whole chapter. It can happen over a whole book, often does, in the Old Testament. In fact, the first five books of the Bible are a chiasm. But this passage has a chiasm to it. Isaiah 43, 1 to 7. What is this main point that the Lord is driving at here? A, the Lord and the people he redeemed, in verse 1. In verse 7, the Lord and the people he created for his glory. B, the Lord with his people in water and fire, in verse 2. B, the Lord with his people scattered, 5 and 6. And now the central point. C, what the Lord gave for his people. And C, what the Lord will give for his people. You see, to the Israelites who'd be reading this, all this is good love language. All this is good stirring the affections. But what God is driving at is to say, do you remember the Exodus? In the Old Testament, when you want to talk about God's faithfulness and his power and his demonstration of love, the one place that you go is the Exodus. Because this is the most powerful demonstration of God's saving will for his people. And what happens in it? God comes to Pharaoh through Moses, says, let my people go. There is an oppressor. God's people are in bondage to slavery. He says, do you remember what it's like not to eat? Do you remember what it's like to be cold, to be impoverished? 
Do you remember what it's like to be oppressed by evil people and have no hope in life? And he says, remember what I gave for my people. Took them out of bondage, out of slavery. And so he's going to say that he will, in fact, give up Egypt or Cush or Seba, which are the southernmost regions of Egypt. I will give people in exchange for you and nations instead of your life. God's saying that when you have an oppressor, like in this situation, there's only one of two options. Either I take their life and let you go, or you live under oppression and lose your life. Those are the options. And God's wisdom and his foreknowledge, those are the options for his people. And he says, do you remember what I gave? I took you out of Egypt. And this is very meaningful to me. It's easy for us to talk about God's people and not God's people. But even in this situation, God says, it's almost a a way of speaking of regret. Do you remember? Even the most vile, wicked, heinous people you can imagine? I love them. I made them. I created them. And they're going to destruction, and I gave them up for you to be free. That's what God's saying to his people. He says, remember what I gave. Also the blood of the lamb. Put on your doorpost to keep you from dying. To keep the firstborn son. To keep your firstborn son. And so then we see at the center of the chiasm, not just what God gave, but he says, what I will give people in exchange for you. What I will give. It should be fairly obvious to what God gave. This language is replete through the New Testament. You know it well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Church, when you doubt God's love for you, Immerse yourself in the truth of the gospel that God gave his one and only son. Notice, there's no distinguishing trait here between God's people, special, and other people. There's no inherent distinguishing trait between the two of them. All there is is God's grace, God's sovereign loving grace that says, I chose you. I chose you. So he says to his special people, I will give. And he did on the cross. And Jesus is sacrificial, life, death, and resurrection. 30, 33 years, poor, dirt, poor. All kinds of suffering, ridicule, by the Roman government, by his own people. All the controversy, all the drama, all the hate, and beyond all that, all the suffering. Crucifixion, death. I will give. The thing that really makes movies great, in my opinion, is that point towards the end where you see somebody is willing to give up. Somebody is willing to lay down their life and sacrifice Because they say it's more valuable. 
This person is more valuable. And that's what we see here for our third point, that God will pay any price for his people, his special people. That's another way that we could clearly read those two verses. God says, what do I have to give up for you? Anything. I will give anything for you. In fact, my very life. This is true love. So as we close today, I just want to read to you how this truth, with the same language, impacted the Apostle Paul. Romans 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you would give us a sense of how deep your love is for your people, for us. Though we've done nothing to earn it, and we do nothing to keep it. Father, would you comfort us and remind us that you are with us wherever we are. Your spirit indwells, and your grace is sufficient. Thank you for his son, your son, and his great work on the cross. It's in his name that we pray.